please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. <coughs> this is our third Sunday in these verses. Um, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. We've done a part one, part two, and part three. This is part three, God willing. Uh, next week, we're going to think about baptism. I'm going to do a whole sermon on baptism. Uh, and then we'll uh, finish Matthew 18 in thinking of forgiveness. <clears throat> Last week, <clears throat> after the sermon, a visitor said, wow, that was, a, that was a tough sermon. That was a tough topic. How did you choose to preach on that? And I told him, well, one of the reasons we think it's important here to just preach through books of the Bible is you can't pick and choose what you're going to talk about. It's just there. <laughs> so <clears throat> if you're looking for a church, I would encourage you to find a church that does preach through books of the Bible. I know Spurgeon didn't do that, uh, but there aren't many Spurgeons around. Um, but we, we recommend preaching through books of the Bible to give people the whole counsel of God. And so we come to these verses again, uh, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his words. We thank you for your spirit <coughs> that <coughs> inspired the writers of the scripture to record his words for us that we can have them here today. Father, we ask that you would instruct us, instruct our minds and hearts. Lord, teach us truth about you, about your word, about how you would have us live together as a church. Father, we pray that you would move our wills to action, that we would not only be hearers of the word today, but doers of the word, that you would show us what we should do. Father, we pray that you would warm our hearts with affection and delight for Christ and for uh, your word and, and for all that you're calling us to do. And we pray, Lord God, you would tan our hides, that you would convict us of sin where we need to be convicted and receive that conviction in love that you care for us and you are determined to destroy our enemies' sin and death. And so be with us now. Help us, Holy Spirit. Guide us and lead us. Help them hear a better sermon than I preach. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. <clears throat> As I've noted, these last three sermons, the, this chapter 18 in Matthew is about how to relate to one another in the church, how to love one another in the church, how to deal with offenses and sins and temptations in the church, and how to forgive one another in the church. And in these verses, 15 through 20, Jesus shows us how to pursue the straying brother or sister in love for their own good, just as God pursues us, just as God 
leaves the 99 and goes after the one who's straying in love, he, he wants us to pursue uh, the, the one who is straying, uh, just like him. And so last week we saw that Jesus Christ, the God-man, loves his people so much that he calls us to pursue the one caught in sin, just like he and his father do, so that the lost or straying might be rescued, restored, and redeemed from the road that leads to destruction. And this text we've been studying these last three weeks is about the practice of church discipline. There's, there's formative church discipline. What we're doing now is formative church discipline. We're being taught the Word of God. Sunday school is, is that kind of church discipline. Uh, counseling is that kind of church discipline. But this is, this is corrective discipline that Jesus is, is talking about. Corrective church discipline. And why, why do we do this? I gave you seven reasons last week. Number one, Jesus commands it. We do this because Jesus is our King. He's our Lord, and we must obey Him. Secondly, it expresses God's great love for us. Some people, people often hear this passage, read this passage, hear it explained about how we should carry it out. And they're, oh, that's so harsh. That's so mean. That, that, that you're, you're excluding somebody. That's so mean. No, it's loving. It's loving. It's actually loving. The, the lover of all lovers, the lover of heaven, the, the, the hound of heaven, the, the, the God who is love is commanding us to do this. this. This expresses God's great love for us that we would turn from sin and not be at home in our sin and come back to Him. He wants us to be bound back to Him because He loves us so much and so He comes after us and He sends His people after those who are straying because He loves us. It expresses our love, our love for fellow church members. Third, it, it expresses our love for fellow church members. If we see someone uh, headed in a bad direction in which they're going to ruin their lives, love goes after them and seeks to turn them away from that destructive behavior. Amen. Number four, it, 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 this, this, these passages, these verses teach the fact that we want to be holy. God's people want to be holy. We want to be set apart for God. We want to be like Jesus. We want to more and more die to sin and, and live a, a more holy life. Five, corrective church discipline keeps others in the church from sin. It acts as a warning to others to, 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 to turn from sin and, and pursue Christ. Number six, it, it protects the reputation of Christ in His church it's for the glory of God. We, we should be pictures to the world of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be believers. They should be able to look at us and say, oh, this is what it means to follow Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. And we can either drag Jesus' name through the mud by the way that we live, or we can, we can be godly examples and, and, and show forth the true picture of, of, of who Christ is and what He came to do. And how he came to change us. And so we do this to protect Christ's reputation and the reputation of his church. And, and seven, uh, we do corrective church discipline because it helps us truly know if we belong to Christ. It helps us know if we truly belong to Christ. I know that if I'm deceived and headed to hell, I won't to be, I want to know about that. I, I want to someone, I want someone to help me see actually, Pastor Joseph, uh, uh, God's word says this, 
you're living this way, inconsistent with God's word, and yet you call yourself a Christian, do you not see the inconsistency there? And I, oh, you're right. I'm not living according to God's word, and I'm calling myself a Christian. Maybe I'm not a Christian. And, and I can repent and believe the gospel and be saved so that I don't go to hell. <laughs> uh, we should want this kind of correction because we want to be with God. We want to be with God. We want to be in His presence. And so in these, this last sermon, I'm going to focus in on verses 18, 19, and 20, where we see that Jesus has given the church the authority to exercise this corrective church discipline. Jesus has given the church, not the presbytery, not bishops, not elders. He, he has given you, the church, the church members, this authority to exercise corrective church discipline. This week we see that Jesus Christ, the God-man, is present with His gathered church, and He gives His church the authority to declare who is and who is not trusting Him and living according to His commands, and thus who is and who is not a part of His church. That's the thesis statement of the sermon. Jesus Christ, the God-man, is present with His gathered church, and He gives His church the authority to declare who is and who is not trusting Him and living according to His commands, and thus who is and who is not a part of His church. Jesus gives the church that authority. <coughs> Point number one. Jesus gives His church the authority of binding and loosing. Look at uh, chapter 18, verse 18. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Remember, the church is like an embassy of heaven. The church represents and speaks for heaven. And the church binds and looses in two ways. The church binds and looses through the preaching of the gospel. The church binds people to God and looses them from God through the preaching of the gospel. What is the gospel? I'm glad you asked. Gospel means good news. Gospel means good news, and the church is to proclaim the gospel. This is why in every sermon I will ever preach, God willing, I will review the gospel with you. It is the foundation of everything that we do here. It is the reason we are here. It is to be our only boast. It, 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 Paul wrote that he determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Our first foundational membership class is on the gospel. It is central. It is important. It is to be our boast, our glory, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know the gospel? Do you know the good news? Do you cherish the good news? Do you delight to hear it every week when I say it again? Or do you think, oh no, here we are. I can check out during this time because he's going to go over the gospel. No, no, it should be your glory. It should be your delight. I remember reading uh, 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 an author about the Apostle Paul. He never got over the gospel. 
He never got over his excitement, his joy, his delight in the gospel. He never got over the fact that God saved him. I mean, think back to the time where you first heard the gospel. You first believed. You first realized your sins are forgiven. That happens through the gospel. And the gospel starts with bad news, right? I mean, we're all sinners. The Bible teaches that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are a lot worse sinners than we think we are. We are, we are a million times worse than we think we are. We, we often think we're pretty good, uh, but God has ways to show us how bad we really are. We're sinners. The Bible teaches all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've broken His commandments in thought. God looks at what we think of right, right? Jesus said, if you look at a woman in lust, you commit adultery with her in your heart. He, he said, you've heard it said of old, you shall not murder, but I tell you if you're angry with your brother... Right? You're in light. You're, 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 you're going to be judged with the judgment of murders. You're going to go to hell too just by losing your temper. And so we murder people by losing our temper. We commit adultery by looking with lust. We get angry. We're impatient. We see things we shouldn't say. We think so many things that we shouldn't think. And God judges our thoughts. And so we deserve God's wrath and judgment in hell because He's a holy, holy, holy God who will not look at sin the prophet says, and so we deserve his wrath and judgment in hell. That's what we deserve. That's what we deserve. But God loves sinners. But God, but God who is rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. He loves sinners. And so he's done something to save us. He's done something to save us from our sins. Namely, He sent His Son. He gave us the, the greatest gift He could ever give, this un, uh, unimaginable gift, Jesus Christ, the God-man, truly God and truly man. Jesus came to the world. Remember, Joseph told was told by the angel, you shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. And he came and lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never had one lustful thought. He, he never lost his temper in a sinful way at all. He was perfect, perfectly pristine and sinless. He came loving and living and serving, doing miracles, raising the dead, making the blind to see, healing the sick, cleansing lepers, casting out demons. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And then he died on that cross where he suffered God's curse and wrath and judgment. As our substitute, we deserve that hell. He took it for us. And he died. He was buried. But on the third day, on the third day, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. He conquered sin, death, and hell. And he's alive now, interceding for us. And if you today, friend, if you're not a believer, if you today would turn from your sins, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, you shall be saved. Yes. And I'm asking you to do that. I'm asking you to do that today. I'm urging you to do that today. If you've not done that today, I'm urging you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved. You may not hear this gospel again. You may not. This may be the last time in your life you hear the gospel. It is urgent that you believe today and repent of your sins. Would you do that? If you do that today, you're forgiven. You're adopted. You're a child of God. And His Spirit will dwell in you and work in you and make you more like Jesus, more holy 
And you will want to obey passages like we're studying in, in Matthew 18 to pursue Christ, to pursue holiness, to turn from sin. Friend, if you, if you believe in Christ today, if you repent, if you want to talk more about that, find me. I'm here afterwards. There are other Christians who would love to speak with you. We want you to believe this gospel today. And I would just say I've been reading something that I felt rebuked by about how I share the gospel with people. And that is urging people to respond. I've not been doing that. I've, I've been going to Broaden Alney and asking the gospel question and telling them the gospel and you need to repent and believe. Uh, does that make sense? And I usually end there, but I don't say, would you repent and believe right now? Yes. We, we need to urge people to do that. Repent and believe now. It, it's an urgent message. And so I would encourage you when you share the gospel to urge people to repent and believe, to trust Christ. That they might be saved. And, and, and God saves us and He places us in the church. He added to those daily, added to the church daily those who are being saved. And, and it's through the church that, that Jesus is binding and loosing, that heaven is binding and loosing, that God is binding and loosing through the preaching of this gospel that I just explained to you all. As the church goes forth and preaches the gospel, many believe and are bound back to God who is in heaven. They're saved. They're forgiven. They're justified. They're adopted into God's heavenly family. Those who hear the gospel on earth and repent and believe, heaven smiles upon them. They belong to God and His dwelling in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. As Jesus taught us in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the pure and poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who hear the gospel and reject it, on the other hand, are loosed from God. They remain in their sins. They remain under God's curse and they're excluded or loosed from the hope of God's heavenly dwelling. And so the church binds and looses through the preaching of the gospel. And the church binds and looses through declaring who is and who is not forgiven. This is what we've been talking about in this passage on corrective church discipline. As the church goes through the process we've been studying in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, those who repent and turn from sin are bound to God by the pronouncement of the church. They are declared forgiven. Yes, Jesus has given the church that authority. Those who refuse to repent are treated as sinful Gentiles and godless tax collectors as Jesus instructed. They are loosed from God and from among His people. They are under God's curse. Very similar to what Jesus taught His disciples in John 20, 23. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. I want to read uh, four different uh, Bible teachers explaining what this means that I think will help you understand what Jesus is talking about in binding and loosing. I, I hope this will correct much of what people wrongly use this language for in prayer. Oh, Lord, we bind these spirits of that. Oh, Lord, we loose these spirits of that. They're, they're totally taking what Jesus teaches here out of context. What is said in this passage is in the context of the gathered church exercising corrective church discipline in binding people to God or loosing people from God based on their obedience to the gospel and obedience to Christ's commands. So I just want you to hear that. I want you to see that. 
Leon Morris comments to the church as a whole, there is committed a responsibility of declaring what conduct is forbidden to the believer and what is permitted. We must bear in mind that the verbs are future perfect, shall have been bound and shall have been loosed. Jesus is not giving the church the right to make decisions that will then become binding on God. Such a thought is alien from anything in his teaching. He is saying that as the church is responsive to the guidance of God, it will come to the decisions that have already been made in heaven. In John 20, 23, it is made clear that this is because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not saying that the church will be full of natural human wisdom. He is referring to decisions made in the light of the guidance of the Spirit of God. And what is the sword of the Spirit? The Word of God. And so, uh, that as people live their lives and refuse to repent of sin, that God very clearly in His Word says you must repent of or you will not inherit the kingdom of God, God has given the church the authority to say, listen, the Bible says if you live this way, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's been bound in heaven. And so we're declaring it on earth. If you don't repent, you're going to die and go to hell. And we're warning you that because we love you. And so what has been... Declared in heaven, we're declaring to you on earth because God's word says it. And God's spirit has led us to declare this to you. D.A. Carson comments, God's realm, heaven, is breaking into the sinful human realm. Heaven has revealed the gospel in the person of Jesus the Messiah. And heaven's rule has thereby broken in. The church accomplishes this binding and loosing by proclaiming a gospel that has already been given and by making personal application on that basis. Whatever the church binds or looses will have been bound or loosed as long as the church adheres to that divinely disclosed gospel. The church may be authoritative in binding and loosing because heaven has acted first. Those the church ushers in or excludes have already been bound or loosed by God according to the gospel already revealed. David Platt comments, Jesus is not giving some special authority to us outside of himself but rather it is attached to Him and His Word. He is saying that what we do as a church in His name with His authority is a reflection of what He does in heaven. So if someone comes to the church and says, I'm living in sin and I am unrepentant, I will not turn to Christ, then we can say to that person with authority, you are living bound in sin and your sin is not forgiven. To be clear, their sin is not unforgiven because we said so. Their sin is unforgiven because Christ has said so in His Word. Similarly, if someone says that they are willing to turn from their sin, then we can say to them with full confidence that their sin is forgiven and they are now free from it. Jesus has given us the privilege of proclaiming what He has said to be true. And finally, uh, I... When we looked at Matthew 16, I read this from Jonathan Lehman. He said, I used to live and work in Brussels, Belgium. The U.S. Embassy there formally recognized me as a U.S. citizen and gave me a new passport when my old one expired. Even though I am a U.S. citizen, the embassy possesses an authority I don't possess. The authority to speak for and make provisional decisions on behalf of the government of the United States. Jesus gave churches a similar authority to the U.S. Embassy in Brussels. 
the authority to make provisional judgments concerning what is a right confession of the gospel and who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus meant when he said churches possess the authority to bind and loose on earth what's bound and loosed in heaven. He didn't mean they could make people Christians or make the gospel what it is no more than the embassy could make me an American or make American laws. Rather, Jesus meant they could make official pronouncements or judgments concerning the what and the who of the gospel. What is a right confession and who is a true confessor? Beloved, Jesus has given this authority to His local churches. And that's why we as a church should take church discipline so seriously. Beloved, just notice that Jesus has given great authority to His church. Jesus has declared that the church is the final authority on these matters, the most important matters of heaven and hell. We see another picture of the greatness of this authority right after the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, instructs the Corinthian church on church discipline. Right after 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and if you, you struggle with church discipline, first of all, go back and listen to the uh, prior two sermons on Matthew 18. But last week I did read 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul also makes this practice clear. But, but in 1 Corinthians 6, right after 1 Corinthians 5, we read about the authority and, and, and the place, the primacy that, that, that Christ gives His church. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? In other words, Paul's talking to the Corinthian church about going to court, going to court, suing other believers. He says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Beloved, you will judge the world. The church. Again, the saints will judge the world, not the presbytery, not the bishopric. The saints, the gathered saints, the church. The church is the final authority. This is why I'm a congregationalist. It's just so clear to me. The saints will judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? But before we go on to verse 3, just notice this in, 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 in the Galatian letter. Paul expected the Galatian congregation to, to, to do gospel judgment over angels and the apostle himself. The gathered congregation of Galatia, if they heard another gospel preached by an angel or Paul himself, Paul said, you congregation, let them be anathema. You congregation are the judges. You are the final authority under Christ, guided by his word. Verse 3, do, not, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? The church, the church, the church, the church. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. I mean, that's a powerful statement. <laughs> he, he, he says, in such a sue-happy culture, that's a good word to hear. 
it would be better for the glory of King Jesus and the honor of the church that you just get done wrong than go to court and sue. But we love money, don't we? We love that money. We love that money more than Jesus and more than the reputation of the church. So no, 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 I'm going to go to court. It's my brother. That's a whole other sermon, right? I'm not preaching on 1 Corinthians 6. But the point, the point was the authority of the church. The authority of the church. Jesus has invested great authority in the local church of the Lord Jesus Christ and the pronouncements they make through the gospel of Jesus Christ and who is and who is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's another reason it's so important to be a member of a church. Jesus meant for you to have that authority of a local church saying, yes, we affirm your confession of faith. I'm not saying that you can't be a believer outside of a church, but I'm, I am saying the normal way to be a Christian, according to the Bible, is to be a member of a local church where a local church who Jesus has given the authority to pronounces, yes, you're living like a Christian, you have the right profession of faith, welcome to the fold. Point number two, Jesus promises that his church, church's prayers, Jesus promises that his church's prayers will be effective for the purpose of holiness. Jesus promises that his church's prayers will be effective for the purposes of holiness. Look at uh, at verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, the two of you agreeing refers back to verse 16. Remember verse 16 where Jesus talks about take two or three witnesses with you that every charge may be established. So this is referring back to that. Uh, The focus of this verse is on the judicial, corrective church discipline action, not prayer in general, though there are implications for all prayer here. And so God does give us many wonderful promises about answering our prayers like 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. R.T. France comments, no doubt the primary application is to their prayer for the sinner of verses 15 through 17, but the principle of Jesus' presence among His people and therefore of the efficacy of their agreed request can hardly be confined to that specific situation. Even though, like other such promises, it is not to be regarded as an automatic formula for success where prayers are agreed which are not compatible with the one in whose name they are uttered. In other words, 1 John 5, 14, according to His will, He hears us. Praying in Jesus' name, praying according to His will, praying for the things God tells us to pray about in His Word. This is one reason why I encourage you to pray the Bible. Pray the Bible. Because you're praying God's will and God's Word. This prayer in verse, uh, uh, what verse are we? 19 is, 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 has a focus on obeying the commands of Jesus to accomplish corrective church discipline so that God's people will be holy. Yes. That, that's the context. That's the focus of, of this statement of Jesus. Uh, again, I say to you, if two or, or, or three of you are gathered, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. D.A. Carson comments, these two verses should not in this setting be taken as a promise regarding any prayer on which two or three believers agree. Scripture is rich in prayer promises, but if this passage deals with prayer at all, it is restricted by the context and by the phrase about anything which should here be rendered about any judicial matter. 
The Greek word pragma often has that sense. And so in your Bibles, in this verse where it says agree on earth about anything, that word can actually be translated judicial matters or disputes. It's used that way in 1 Corinthians 6.1. When one of you has a grievance against another, that's the same word, anything, in your, most of your translations. And, and, and so Jesus is talking about agreeing on this grievance, this disagreement, this sin matter that he's been dealing with in verses 15 through 20. Notice, beloved, in verse 19 that God the Father smiles on and fully supports His church obeying Jesus and her pursuit of holiness through corrective church discipline. Matthew 18, 19, Again I say to you, If two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, right? And we know that means concerning this matter of of this dispute, this grievance that he's been talking about in pursuing holiness, in people turning from sin and following Christ. That, that Again, that's the main point. If, if two or three of you agree on anything concerning this pursuit of holiness, this turning from sin, this corrective discipline toward this member, we're told it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. By my Father in heaven. Jesus cares about holiness. The Father in heaven cares about the holiness of the church and this correction of sin in His church. And the Holy Spirit came to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment to conform us to the image of Jesus. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit care about the holiness of His church and His people in their turning from sin and following Jesus. The Father cares about this. This will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Third, and finally... Jesus will be with His church in her pursuit of holiness. Jesus will be with His church in her pursuit of holiness. Look at verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in My name, there am I among them. For where two or three are gathered in My name, there am I among them. Now let's talk about some misuses of this verse. And this could really be applied to the misuses of verse 19 as well. This verse does not mean that Jesus is not with us if we are alone. Or, you know, verse 19, it doesn't mean that if, if we're praying by ourselves that God won't answer. And so, you know, we wake up in the morning, I heard one preacher say, and we want God to really hear our prayer and answer. So we have to go to our next door neighbor who's a Christian and pray with them because then this promise will apply. And we got two people. I know Jesus is with me now and... Uh, Jesus is with you, believer. When you're by yourself, when you're alone, Jesus dwells in you by His Holy Spirit. Jesus dwells with you. Now, it is good to understand that there are different ways and degrees that we enjoy Jesus' presence. So even though Jesus is with us as believers, when we're by ourselves, we, we see places in Scripture where uh, people long for Christ's return because to be with Him is much better, that there's something better and more coming to be in the presence of Jesus. And so He's with us, and yet He's not with us. And we long for His physical return to be physically with us. You see, there's this already not yet about that. 
And so Jesus is with us. These verses don't mean that Jesus is not with us if we are alone. This verse is also not a justification for not being a member of a local church. Some people will say, well, you know, I don't have to go to church because me and my, my wife and my kids, that's two or three. Jesus is with us. We don't need a church. We got it right here. That's a gross misuse of this passage out of context. Uh, I don't need to go today. We're here. We'll throw it online. And if you're online watching, I'm glad that you are. But if you're able, you should be here. Amen. <laughs> online is only for people who are sick. Uh, you, you know, it, 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 it's, it, if you're able to be here, you should be here. Online church is not church. And that, that's something tragically that happened over this whole COVID thing is many people, I was talking to a pastor at a gathering this week, he's having a hard time getting people back because it's, it's just easy to stay in your pajamas and watch church on TV yeah. and you think that's church. That's not church. Church means gathering. Yes. <laughs> it means assembly. It means assembling in person. Mm -hmm. And so if you're online, we're glad you're here. But if you ain't sick, you ought to be here. <laughs> uh, and, and, and join us. Uh, join us. But people use this passage as a, as a justification for that. And, and that's a wrong use of, of this passage. A church is a, a in-person gathering of the saints, the called out ones, where the word and gospel is rightly preached, where the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism are rightly uh, administered, and where what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, church discipline is rightly practiced and led by, by, by biblically qualified elders. And leaders. That, that's, that's a church. The two or three, again, being gathered refers back to verse 16. Remember, reading scripture in context. But if he does not listen, take it, take one or two others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So again, uh, where two or three are gathered in my name, that I am among them, again, for this purpose, from verse 16, of, of taking action on corrective church discipline. The witnesses and the church gather, notice, to take this action in Jesus' name. Yes. We gather as those who are united to Jesus Christ. We're in union with Him. When you repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're united to Christ. You, you become one with Him. We, we gather as those who have Jesus dwelling in us by His Spirit. We, we gather in the authority of Jesus Christ. That's what it means that we gather in His name. We gather with the blessing and the presence and the help of Jesus to, to take action toward holiness, toward being more like Him. Beloved, also notice that Jesus is the God-man who is present with His people to love and to judge. Beloved, who is present with God's people to judge in the Old Testament? The Lord God, Jehovah. Isaiah 3, 13-14. The Lord has taken His place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of His people. And Jesus is here saying, I am present with the church to judge. Yes. Jesus is God. Amen. This is what we were told, right? In Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Yes. 
Jesus is present. He's present when this corrective discipline is taking place and he's rendering judgment with his people. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5, when he exhorts the Corinthian church to take action in corrective church discipline. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so again, we carry out this church discipline in the power of the Lord Jesus who's gathered with us so that he will be saved in the day of judgment. And beloved, I want to note this, and I hope, I really hope this gets you excited about coming to worship on the Lord's day. Remember I said there are different ways that Jesus is with us, and yes, Jesus is with us. He's with us while we're alone. He indwells believers. He's with us. And yet there are ways that we long to be with him in a, in a deeper way when he returns physically. There's also a way that Jesus is with us in a special way in the gathered assembly of the Lord on the Lord's day. There's a special way that you don't have alone in your quiet time. As wonderful as that is, there's a special way that Jesus has promised to be with his people on the Lord's day in the worship of God. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? Is that something that excites you about getting up on Sunday and getting here to meet with Jesus? Because he's with us in a special way that he's not with us alone. Do you understand that biblically? I hope that, that, that thinking about this will help you. I mean, j j j just, just hear what j j Jesus said here. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And I, I read an article that I found very helpful, and I'm going to read it to you, uh, that explains this by a friend of mine, a pastor named Nick Badsig. And he writes this. A friend of mine was recently speaking to a pastor of a large congregation about how things were going in ministry. A lot of times when pastors get together, how's things going, how's church going? They talk shop, so to speak. This particular pastor proceeded to tell my friend that a prominent public figure was coming to speak at the church he pastored. He then went on to boast about the large turnout that they expected at this event. To this, my friend said, Oh yeah, Jesus comes to our church every Sunday. Jesus comes to our church. Church every Sunday. Though some might consider this to be a flippant, cynical, or juvenile response, it is in fact one of the most under-acknowledged and underappreciated truths to cherish. In every church where the Word of God is faithfully proclaimed, the sacraments or ordinances are rightly observed and discipline is administered, God has promised to attend His people with His presence. The true and living God has promised to manifest His presence when His people gather together to worship Him according to His appointed means of grace on the Lord's day. If we really believe that God manifests His presence in a special way in the gathered assembly, we would prepare ourselves accordingly to come into His presence. We would prayerfully desire to come every Lord's day in brokenness, humility, thankfulness, and joy. We would, in the words of the writer of Hebrews, draw near with boldness as we come to worship Him in reverence and godly fear. Yeah. 
In his letter to the church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul explained that Christ came and preached peace to you who are far off, to those who are near. The question is, when did Jesus go to the church in Ephesus and preach to those who had come to believe the gospel? There is only one possible answer. Christ was present in the preaching of the gospel through the ministers he appointed. When the word is faithfully preached, Christ is preaching. The Apostle Peter explained this when he referred to gospel ministers as those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The Holy Spirit is none other than the Spirit of Christ who spoke in the Old Testament prophets about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that follow. It was by the Spirit that Jesus went and preached to those who were on the earth in the days of Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness through whom Christ was preaching by the Holy Spirit. So it is with those men whom Christ has commissioned to preach today. So it is with those men whom Christ has commissioned to preach today. Whenever gospel ministers are preaching the Word of God to the people of God through the Spirit of God, Christ is preaching through them. In a very real sense, in every true church where the Word is faithfully proclaimed, the risen and reigning Christ is the minister who is preaching salvation and judgment. The people of God should love the Lord's Day worship more than anything because of the confident anticipation they are going to hear from God. Professor John Murray gave the following observation about God's Word. The Scripture is God speaking as if we heard the Word of God directly from heaven. I suppose that if we were told that at a certain location on a certain day at a certain hour a voice was to be heard from heaven, I suppose that if that were plainly certified, I am sure that all that community would be filled with people from hundreds of miles away. They would come from countries. I don't suppose that the fields would hold them. They would be there out of curiosity if no other reason. And yet in the Scripture, we have the voice of God just as surely as if God the Father spoke directly from heaven in an audible voice. And it is more sure, 2 Peter 1.19, because it is more permanent. With the Scripture, there is a permanent deposit, and it is the voice of God with continuousness. And it is the voice of God just as if we heard God speaking to us directly from heaven. We should also acknowledge that Jesus is present at the table, the Lord's Supper, when believers are gathered together in worship to feed on Him by faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith explains the corporate nature of the Lord's Supper. In chapter 29.3, the Lord Jesus has, in His ordinance, appointed His ministers to declare His word of institution to the people, to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine, and thereby to set them apart from a common to an holy use, and to take and break the bread, to take the cup, and they, communicating also themselves, to give both to the communicants, but to none who are not then present in the congregation." The corporate nature of the supper is taught in 1 Corinthians when the apostle came to address matters of the supper. Paul repeatedly uses the phrase, when you come together, after explicitly tying the observation of the supper to the weekly assembly on the Lord's Day. In 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, 18, he writes, when you come together as a church. After that, he repeats the phrase, when you come together, three times. If there is any question about the meaning of this phrase, Paul again uses it when addressing how we are to conduct ourselves in worship services. Then, Westminster Confession of Faith 29.7, we find the doctrine of the real spiritual presence of Christ at the table when the divines assert the following. 
Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporately, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ, being then not corporally or carnally, in, with, or under the bread and wine, yet as really but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to their outward senses." There is the promise of the covenant blessing of God attached to the worthy partaking of the sacrament. Paul writes, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? There is also the promise of covenant curses attached to the unworthy partaking of the sacrament in the warnings of 1 Corinthians 11, 27-32. Finally, there is the promise of Jesus being present when the church gathers to carry out discipline according to His Word. Murray again explained, Many have more respect for the presence of people than the presence of the Savior. And if numbers are the criteria for our esteem for the presence of God, then we miss entirely the comfort of our Lord where He says, Where two or three are gathered together in My name, there I am in the midst of them. Jesus is highlighting the collective nature of the judicial pronouncement of His church when He promises to make His presence known in this context. It is with a view of the church collectively conceived, making a judgment about the spiritual condition of a professing believer who refuses to repent. Jesus is promising His presence to the gathered assembly who are seeking to obediently carry out His ordained process of discipline. Jesus Christ is the King and the only head of the church. He mediates the presence of God to His people when He stands in the midst of the people of God who are gathered together to worship the living God. Jesus acts as the worship leader of the people of God. He stands as the great high priest of the church, making the worship, prayers, and praises of His people acceptable before the throne of God. Whenever the people of God are gathered together to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the means that He's appointed for His church, God is present. Why wouldn't we long to be gathered together with the people of God every Lord's Day to listen to our great God and Savior speak, to receive His sacrificial service, and to acknowledge His rule over us? Beloved, these verses in Matthew 18, 15 through 20 uh, are the foundation of all of these thoughts of Christ's presence with His people to work in us that we might be holy that we might be like Christ, which is God's commitment to us. He's conforming every one of you believers into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's the main thing about life. <laughs> the main thing in life is keeping the main thing, the main thing as one has said, and the main thing is life is, is giving glory to God through you being conformed to the image of Jesus. Yes. And sometimes that means we don't get what we want or what we think we need. But God does in our lives what's needed to make us more like Jesus, and that's the main thing. Yes. Jesus Christ, the God-man, is present with His gathered church, and He gives His church the authority to declare who is and who is not trusting Him and living according to His commands, and thus who is and who is not a part of His church. This whole section of Scripture, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, which we finish today, God willing, is focused on the holiness of God's people. And beloved, at the end here, just let me remind you, Jesus Christ died and rose again to make us forgiven people, 
to make us happy people in his very presence and to make us holy, to make us holy. I love the words of the hymn. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Is the foulest here today? Is the foulest sinner here today who has done things that are unspeakable in the congregation? Well, let me give you good news today. Jesus Christ's blood makes the foulest clean. Those who have done the unthinkable, the unspeakable. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. And the vilest of sinners who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Would you believe Him today? I urge you, repent and believe the gospel today. Be saved, be cleansed, and begin that Holy Spirit process of His conforming you to the image of Jesus and making you more holy. Christ Jesus' presence everywhere shows He is God. None can compare. Yet in His gathered church with care, in a special way He's there. Judging, loving, always fair. Granting authority that's rare. Gives binding, loosing power there. To declare who's His. For there, the ones He died and rose to spare. From all God's wrath and death. And share with them new life and pleasures where... There's only joy. Nothing can scare. So worship. Go to Him in prayer to ask Him all that you would dare according to His will. He'll share with you His gifts. No mercy spare. Father, we praise You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise You that He is with us now in a special way. Lord, that we've heard from Him and His Word today. We ask, O Lord, that we would internalize this Word, believe this Word, rejoice in the Gospel. Father, we pray, Lord, for many of those that we have disciplined and loosed from this church, that that we have voted as members to remove them from the membership, declaring that they're unbelievers. Father, wherever they are today, uh, under the judgment of you and under the judgment of the church, we pray that you would grant them repentance. Yeah. We pray that we would keep them in mind and, and keep praying for them. We, we long for the day when they would return out of the far country and repent of sin and, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and, and come under the formative discipline of the church. And so, Father, work. Lord, help us to understand our authority as a church. Help us to exercise it rightly according to your word and by the power of your spirit. Father, we pray that you would use these sermons on Matthew 18, 15 through 20 to drive us to pursue holiness, to love one another. Lord, to confront sin with grace and humility and love. And, and we pray, God, you would make us as a church a holy and a humble and a loving people who seek to obey Christ and trust Christ and live for your glory. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.